Welcome once again, everybody, to the Beaver Tales podcast. I am Josh Warden. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast where I chat with former Oregon State athletes. We talk about their playing days, what they've learned since then, what they've done since then, and some of the major maturity and growth processes they've been through since graduating from OSU. Bill Rao is my guest today. I've had a lot of baseball players from the 2018 squad, and while Bill was on staff for the 2018 team, he was a player himself back in the day in 06, winning a national championship 14 years ago. So he's the first player from a different era of Beaver baseball to get on this podcast. Bill Rao was the first baseman on that 2006 team. He only played one season for Oregon State, transferring from UC Santa Barbara. So he went one for one in winning national championships in his only season. Bill Rao made the all-tournament team at the College World Series in 2006. He batted 419 in the postseason as they beat North Carolina in that 06 College World Series, the program's first ever national championship on the diamond. Bill Rao went on to have a brief pro baseball career in the Brewers organization, and then he worked for 10 years up until somewhat recently in the film industry. Partly up in Portland, he was working on a show called Grimm that was produced and shot up in Portland, Oregon. It was on NBC. He also worked on the Twilight Trilogy. He was on set for a time on, on one of those movies as well. And he also was reunited in the, in the film industry for a brief stint in one of the movies he worked on with OSU second baseman Darwin Barney. And Darwin, who went on to win a gold glove in Major League Baseball, he reunited with him there. So he'll, he'll share that story as well as coming back to Oregon State for the spring of 2018 and 2019, two seasons where he was an assistant coach. He started as an undergraduate assistant coach with Oregon State, and he finished his degree and now is the head coach of the Medford Rogues. That's a summer league wood bat baseball team down in Southern Oregon, which is where Bill Rao is from. He went to Ashland High School. Now, while the Corvallis Knights season and and similar teams, some of them have been canceled, the team Bill Rao coaches, they actually have not canceled their season, and they're planning on playing this summer. It's a a shortened schedule, and the stipulations of how they'll be able to play baseball are kind of quirky of how they're going to do it. How are sports starting this soon, as soon as next month? But they're kind of fun, and we'll talk about what that'll look like for the Medford Rogues baseball season. Speaking of Oregon State baseball players, today's featured nonprofit is Kingdom Home, led by former Oregon State Beaver Matt Boyd, a pitcher on the Oregon State team a few years back. In between those two times, Bill Rao was on the team in 06 and when he came back to the program in 2018. In that meantime, Matt Boyd was a tremendous pitcher, has gone on to Major League Baseball with the Detroit Tigers, and Matt Boyd heads up an organization with his wife Ashley trying to end child sex slavery in Uganda, and they have a home there in Uganda. And if you want to play a role in donating, sponsoring a child, and helping that cause, you can check them out at kingdomhome.org. That's kingdomhome.org. As I try to use this platform to both give you compelling interviews and stories of former Oregon State Beavers and using this listenership for a good cause. So thanks for doing that and listening to this interview with Bill Rao. He's a fun guy to talk to. It was fun to connect with him. He's a guy who has done everything from starting his own fly fishing company to winning an NCAA title. And I hope you enjoy hearing from Bill Rao here on the Beaver Tales podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, Bill, thanks for joining me on the Beaver Tales podcast. It's fun to chat with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for chatting with me. It'll be fun to connect both about 
your playing career and winning a national championship in 06 and then seeing a firsthand look at the 2018 squad as well. So you got a couple of different perspectives of national championship squads in Oregon State. But let's just start more of a recent pertinent look at what your life looks like at the moment. What have you been up to the last couple of months? It sounds like sports isn't far off the radar for you this summer. So what does life look like recently for you? Yeah, so I accepted the job as a head coach of the Medford Rogues uh, summer baseball program, which is a wood bat league for college baseball players. And we're still trying to put on a season this summer from early July until mid-August. The city has allowed us to have 250 fans max in our 2,000-person stadium. Everyone's going to be super spread out. We're all going to be wearing masks in the dugout and on the field, so it's going to look a little bit different, but we're all really excited to get some baseball in. And so other than just contacting the players for that, I've been really working in the garden a lot. So I got a really massive vegetable garden out here on our uh, eight acre family farm. And then I've been doing a lot of wild mushroom hunting and fly fishing also. So isolated things that I can do by myself just to keep myself busy while I'm waiting for baseball to get going. That's good. How much, not that there's really a precedent for playing baseball with masks, but um, how much would wearing a mask affect or do you think they'll get used to it and it'll, after, you know, three innings, they won't even notice it anymore? Yeah, you know, the the pitcher, the catcher might be the most uncomfortable having to wear a mask the whole time. I think for a fielder, it's probably not going to be that difficult just to do it. Um, It's going to be unfortunate to have to do it for the whole game. Uh, And I'm not sure if maybe players would be allowed if, like, you're a third baseman, if you don't have to wear it until maybe your base is occupied or there's a runner on base, maybe you could wait and not have to put it on until then. I don't know exactly how it's going to work, but we're just excited to get to play some baseball. I remember vividly in 2006, the national championship you were on, as Tyler Graham is drifting over for the final out, his hat comes off before he makes the catch is the new thing going to be you take off the mask before catching the final out to win the championship first of all that had seemed to happen to Tyler every single time he ran for a ball that week I think he just made that happen on purpose he got like an extra big hat because it made him look really fast when his hat flew off but yeah no I think I think you know we can get unique we're, it sounds like we're gonna have masks that have the team logo on it hmm. and everything like that but I thought it would be cool. I mean, I don't know how much it could be a distraction, but as a pitcher, you could probably get in the head of a hitter a little bit if you had like a clown face mask or like a picture of your actual face printed on your mask. That would be maybe pretty disturbing, I think. (laughs) That'd be pretty good. You can get creative with it. And hey, there's no rules in the rule book that say you can't wear a mask that's got some weird picture on it. Like that's not, there's no precedent for that. This summer, anything goes. It's going to be a gritty, interesting, unique form of baseball. But yeah, we're, we're going to have fun doing it. So you'll be down there in Southern Oregon where you're essentially from, born, born in California, but spent most of your, your adolescent and childhood years, went to Ashland High School. Are you, do you still got the, I mean, you said you spent a lot of time outdoors and in the garden. Do you still have the fly fishing company going? Is that on the, on the docket or anything for you now? Yeah, I mean, just basically, I mean, still my Instagram handle is still SexyFly, and that's kind of, I still have that going just to kind of keep the, the interest out there. It's more of just, I guess, kind of branding myself and my lifestyle in case I ever want to get into broadcasting or making my own production for outdoor film, television, entertainment, that sort of thing. How did you come up with the name Sexy Fly? Really good question. Okay, this is really funny. So it was a proactive, you remember proactive, like the acne medication that they used to sell back in the day, there was like infomercials, and they had Puff Daddy on this infomercial. And at one point, he's talking about proactive, he's like, you know, it just really 
sexifies my situation. And I just thought that that, that take was so funny. And I like tra- I transitioned that to fly fishing because I don't know, in the moment, especially with the salmon fly hatch, which we're just experiencing, when these giant bugs hatch, their, their only purpose in life is to mate, lay eggs, and then die. They don't even have a digestive system. So there's a lot of like, you know, bug orgies in the bushes going on and the birds are going crazy and the fish are going crazy. So I don't know. I just, I tried to tie it all together. No one else in fly fishing was really going for, for that direction. And I thought it was a unique opportunity. I think if nothing else, this conversation shows you need to lean into whatever the unique nature, whether it's masks on the mound that mess with the batter's head or it's using Puff Daddy as inspiration for your fly fishing right. thing. Just go with it, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, my both my parents are uh, actors, they're performers. So that's definitely rubbed off on me. And I've always been encouraged to be unique. And as an adult, uh, and now as a head coach, I I get the ability to be able to do that. We're going to have a lot of fun this summer for sure. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to some of your experience in the film industry since you brought that up, kind of alluded to it a little bit. We'll definitely talk about that in a moment. But as you brought up with now you're, you're a head coach and you, you've had experience on a baseball staff, you've been a player, but as you step into a head coach, you're, you're now on a level at least of the same title as people like Pat Casey and all the other head coaches you've ever had in your career. And that's a big role to have. You need to be a, a, a teacher, a leader of men, a mentor. There's a lot of factors at play into that. And so when you try to develop into that role, and, and this is a unique time to be a coach, there's a lot going on in America these days. There's, you know, protests going on, conversations of racial inequality. There's conversations about the pandemic. I mean, it's an odd, unique time in America. So not just as a head coach, but just as a person, as someone who's grown up since your college days, what is something that maybe you've learned or, or would like to, to help your players learn as they mature? These are, you know, college age kids that are playing for the rogues, you know, 18, 20, you know, one years old, whatever it may be. What's something that, that you hope kids like that would learn at a time like this? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think for me, without getting too deep into it, the reason that I stopped playing baseball was because I no longer felt like the culture in the locker room and amongst the team was really aligned with what how I felt individually and I didn't know how to give a voice to that or to feel good about an impact that I could make with that platform and now going back as an adult in coaching I realized that you know, I am a role model to these kids and I am also in a unique position to have very difficult conversations with a lot of young men uh, that some people may not be able to have just because they won't be as comfortable talking about difficult concepts. And so I think even before we're having this, um, you know, humanitarian social justice movement that we're having right now, I was very excited and also Coach Berberet, I know was too, to be able to kind of control that type of any kind of negative lingo or, you know, racist, sexist, homophobic remarks that we could just shut that down from the very beginning with a team, which is not really something that you ever hear when you're a player on a team in your day one meeting. It's like, we're not going to tolerate any of this right away. And I think that that's, that's where we're at in our country. That's what, what needs to be said. And I'm excited to be able to be able to enforce that for the first time. 
Right. You've been able to play that role and you'll be able to play that role as you continue in, in your position with the Rogues. And, and I'm glad that you do have a chance to actually coach them and have a season, even if it's a shortened, odd one. But you've got that opportunity. You mentioned you kind of switching roles and you were in the minors and college baseball and pro baseball are very different in terms of your teammates and the goals that you have. So you've had a couple of switches. You went from Oregon State to the pros, played a little bit in the Brewers organization. Then you switched and you spent about a decade basically in the film industry and then switched that up and came back to Oregon State. You were an undergraduate assistant. Now you're back into coaching. So it seems like your life has taken a couple zigzags there. What went into making the decisions, whether you want to focus more on the one to go into the film industry or out of the film industry, whichever one is, is more of a compelling story to you. But how did you make that life choice? Because it's not always easy to switch up where your career and life are going. Yeah, very difficult choice to make. And I can tell you, it took until the last day before I was going to be flying to spring training uh, for another season with the Brewers before I just came to the realization that, you know, it, it was only about the money for me at that point. There was no more passion left for the game because what I really loved about baseball was what the college game provided that the pro game, I don't think provides until you make it all the way up to that top level. And you're with a group of guys in an organization for a while, and you can really band together and have that family experience that just disappears so quickly. Once you get to the minor leagues, um, and then the, the physical and emotional commitment that it takes to be able to get through that year after year, you know, after you've heard the activities that I like doing, wild mushroom hunting, fly fishing, you can kind of see why that level of commitment for something that I'm not 100% passionate about would be very difficult for me to commit to. And so I just knew that I'd rather spend time around the people who I really cared about, my family, my close friends, doing the activities that I wanted to do. And and I was a hard enough worker and a smart enough individual. And fortunately for me, have enough privilege that I am going to be okay. And I'm willing to work hard for being able to do the things I love and support myself. And so that's kind of been my focus. And it's been interesting because each transition I've made, it's always been baseball that has helped me to make that transition. I'm getting into the minors because of baseball and then the film industry the first project I worked on was a baseball movie called Calvin Marshall that we filmed down here in Ashland, had Darwin Barney in it, Ryan Gibson in it, really fun project to work on. And then went up to Portland to work on the Twilight, first Twilight film in baseball and just loved that. Got to work with my brother on that film, which, you know, I hadn't been able to basically do anything with him since we were in high school together and just caught the bug for that and decided to get into film production and stuck around with that for a while. And then you know, hadn't finished my degree because I transferred from UC Santa Barbara to Oregon State and lost a bunch of credits and then left. So when I found out there was an opportunity to come back to Oregon State as an undergraduate coach and finish that school, I really just jumped on that opportunity right away. And it was basically in December after the season had already started in 2018 when I found out that position was available and I just dropped everything I was doing and basically went to Corvallis and just kind of trying to follow my passion and provide myself with more opportunities while at the same time being able to help out young baseball players, which is, you know, I, I'd say it'd be a waste of my experience if I wasn't doing everything I could to help young baseball players. Seems like you've had a, a fun ride so far and you're preparing yourself for the next stage. When I saw that you had worked 
on the Twilight movies, I realized, okay, I, I need to, I need to ask about this because I have not seen the Twilight movies, but most people are at least somewhat familiar with them enough to be like, okay, that's the, the movie with the vampires or the trilogy with, you know, Edward Pattinson and, and Kristen Stewart. And I saw you had worked as a baseball advisor. I was like, okay, I don't know that much about Twilight, but I know enough to know that's not a baseball movie. So I, I Googled it and I saw the scene where there's a bunch of vampires playing baseball. And I don't know the full context of how it fits into the narrative arc, but there is some baseball in the trilogy. And I watched the scene and you can tell me more about how they used you as a baseball advisor, if there's more to your role than that. But I'm guessing part of it was they want people who know about baseball to advise them on how the game works. They cannot look stupid when they make a scene of it, but how did you play a role and how weird was it to work with, well, they're not humans playing baseball in the story. They're vampires. They're jumping up 30 feet in the air and running a hundred miles. So it's not conventional baseball, but how did that work to work with twilight? Yeah, it was super fun. Really interesting. I was working on Calvin Marshall in Southern Oregon and the producer of the film came up to me and said, there's a vampire baseball movie being filmed in Portland and I gave him your name and I'm like, okay, vampire baseball movie. That's like the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And then of course I went up to work on it and it's the director was, it was a, I mean, a huge budget for that film, obviously. And that's the first thing you recognize when you just see the scope of what they're doing in their production office and what they're talking about accomplishing and found out that there's this baseball scene and the director was insistent upon wanting the actors to look like they knew what they were doing while they were out there because they're supposed to be 150-year-old vampires who have been playing baseball since the invention of the game, you know, in, in the late 1800s. And so the studio thought that that was crazy. And they're like, no, you can't hire a technical advisor because typically those people cost over $500 a day, maybe a, over $1,000 a day. And so what these producers did was they found me, this like local guy who like had worked on a movie, but like also knew baseball, but wasn't going to like cost a bunch of money and put me on the set for, I was on the stages with the actors for a month, just working on the specific baseball movements that they were going to have to do for this one scene, because nobody in the film who had to do any of the actions had ever played baseball before. So that was the biggest thing was just, and the, and the girl who, I'm trying to remember her name right now. I can't remember. One of the young women had to swing left-handed because her character was left-handed in the script and the director, Catherine Hardwick, wanted it to be true to the script. So she had to develop a left-handed swing. Uh, girl, I, oh God, I can't remember her name anyway. The girl, the pitcher girl had to learn how to do a full wind-up. She had ballet experience. So we just gave her a really high leg kick and just tried to like mask the fact that her release was going to be kind of weak. But, you know, she had the wind-up going and then, on the set for a week with the first unit with all that's all the actors making sure that you know like you said the umpire standing in the right position that they're rounding bases properly that when they slide they're in the right position and then a week with the second unit which is all the stunt doubles when they come in and do like the really crazy stuff um, and then then that was the the unit that my brother worked on so the whole week we actually filmed right across the columbia gorge from multnomah falls there's this big meadow out there. Uh, I think it's owned by the University of Oregon, and we called it the Shire. And so we filmed out there at this awesome place uh, for a month, and I'm still friends with some of the stand-ins from that. Actually, my buddy Preston and I, we go fly fishing together, and, and he stood in for one of the vampire guys on that, on that film. Wow. Uh, when I'm watching that scene, I'm realizing I don't think these actors have ever played baseball before, so some of it looks 
odd, like the picture you brought up. She goes in kind of an odd wind up and she doesn't really cock her arm back and she her arm is like right by her. She throws it like a football basically. But there are parts of it where it's like, okay, they, they do get this right. Her lefty swing looks relatively like she knows what she's doing and the slide, like there are elements where it's like, okay, it's not perfect, but you can tell your, you can see your fingerprints there where they don't make fools of themselves. And it's amazing that you spend a month. It's like a three minute scene, unless there's more that that I didn't see, but that's a lot of work for one scene. Yeah. Two weeks of filming for that scene. And I, I didn't get to work with them every day for a month. I literally sat around on the stage while they were doing all their uh, rehearsals and fittings and you know all the introductions with everything and then if I got them for five minutes to an hour out of the day I would take them aside and I'd have you know MLB freeze frames from a bunch of different positions so that they could kind of match it and I'll tell you the actors can pick up those things a lot better than a young baseball player who's been doing it wrong for 10 years like these actors are trained to be able to mimic physical movement so they were able to pick stuff up pretty quick for the short period of time that they're able to work together but to to be quite honest rob pattinson was such a non-athlete and and i know he's about to play batman so i'm really curious to see how this works because when i was working with him you know he just told me he's like i've never played any sports you know i've always <laughs> been into drama and it's like he just could not move athletically and so every single scene in that film where even he couldn't even jog and make it look good so they used a stunt double for everything with him climbing a tree or running like there it was not possible for him to make an athletic movement so there was nothing i could do with him but for the young women who i worked with they were awesome nailed it there was a kid in my high school who was a stunt double and his major thing was oh yeah i played robert pattinson when i'd have never seen the movie but i think there's some brief moment where he like drops an apple or something and has to kick it back up to himself i'm like they needed a stunt double to do that but i guess he was so unathletic he couldn't do that yeah yeah that's basically how it went it was pretty crazy we did there's a one scene in the end just to kind of get a little bit off that topic but i walked speaking of stunt doubles where this guy comes in from this upper window on a second balcony on the inside of this ballet studio and slams into this guy on the ground and they had the floor rig to just rip up and push him into this wall and on the first take of filming this on the stage the stunt double comes down slams him and just slams the guy so hard into the ground that he just gets a straight concussion like right away and then had to go through the rest of the stunt and then they had they didn't get the scene obviously because the guy's got a concussion he's all days and so they had to pull him out and like call another stunt guy in and pay the guy like another fifteen thousand dollars to like do this stunt one time to see if they could get it the right way so every time i see that one shot in that movie i'm always thinking man i watched that guy just get crushed the first time shooting that gosh let's stay just a little bit more in the film industry and then we'll go back to some baseball memories at oregon state the twilight one is an interesting part but really the the bulk of the time you spent uh in the in the industry was with the tv show grim which is shot Mm -hmm. up in portland um it was you know, a fun show and kind of popular around Oregon for that reason of being locally produced, but it was, it was on NBC, right? Pretty well-known show. And so what are some of your memories of, of funny stuff you learn there, whether it's, you know, that stunt double story is a weird one where not everybody, you know, you don't know that unless you've been there. So what's something that stood out from your time at at working on the the set of Grimm? Well, we had NBC hired a lot of just extremely talented people to work on that. So our stunt coordinator, Matt Taylor, his whole family is just legendary in the stunt world. And so he was Keeper Sutherland's double on 24 for a bunch of years. And he's in 
310 to Yuma fight scene. I mean, anything his family's in. So all his stunts were really cool. And he got me involved a bunch of times. So anytime a, a prop had to be thrown to hit some something specific, like, you know, a wine glass has to hit something on the wall the right way, or this one piece of fruit has to fly, I would, they would always bring me in for the close-up, right? So they'd have the actor throw it from here, and then they'd, like, flip around and, like, just get the hand throwing it against the wall. And, like, they would always put the actor's jacket on me so they'd just see my hand. And then one time it was a bat swinging and hitting a bunch of fruit and vegetables. So that was really fun. And then all the special effects makeup creatures that we had on set where you know stunt people spent six hours in a makeup chair from uh getting worked on by an academy award-winning special effects makeup team and these monsters would come out and and they look good on tv but i can tell you they look way better in person I'm, they have the detail of the little hairs coming out of the nose and just the liquid sprays that they are putting on this to try and make it look realistic I'll never forget how cool that was just to be walking around with some of those creatures and watching them, you know, drink juice boxes from a sippy cup and then filming a scene where they're eating a child or something like that. It's just really, really funny to watch that kind of transition. And of course, my brother was on set for almost the whole thing with me, which was just a, a joy for me. Yeah, it is. For those who haven't seen it, the, it is an odd show where the eating a child is, a, well, I mean, it, you'd have to watch the show to understand how that works. But yes, that's part of the show. You ever know how you know, playing first base for Oregon State would prepare you for the next level in your career. But apparently there are ways where even even that sort of thing, you know, throwing yeah. objects, using a bat, that sort of thing, you never know how that's going to yeah. help. Yeah, I invented the position, the stunt thrower. And that's like, that's my dream goal is to create a network of out-of-work baseball players who can just be flown into big budget movies to be throwing like specialty items, either a sword or a chair or something just into a wall for a big fight scene when you got to get it right that one time. It's, you know, bring in the stunt thrower. That's, that's my goal someday. Right. And ultimately that, and I think the sports advisor role, because when I watch sports movies, a lot of them just don't, they're not that good. They're, they're non-sports people trying to do sports things. So I, I hope if you ever, you know, want to go back to that or prepare the next level, I think sports movies need to improve. And it's people like you that are going to play a big role doing that. Well, you should go check out Calvin Marshall because it's supposed to be a championship junior college team program. And you'll buy it because Darwin Barney's their shortstop. And I've, it's all these D1 guys that I played with from UC Santa Barbara and Oregon State who came down to play this junior college team because the director and the writer of the film was insistent upon getting guys who actually looked like they knew what they were doing because he played baseball and he thinks the exact same thing you do that all these other baseball movies, you know, major league players looking like they've only been swinging the bat for a week in their right. life. You know, right. Well, that's good. Well, let's talk about some real baseball a little bit and some yeah. memories from Oregon state. When I interviewed Kyle Novak a few weeks ago and talking about that 2018 championship, one of the things he brought up, he's like, Josh, you go, you got to go find this video of Bill Rao in the locker room after the championship game. And he was, he was talking about the 06 team versus the 18 team. And it was hilarious. And I searched around for it and I couldn't find it. And I searched around for it again today. Like this is a couple of months after I talked to him and I finally found it this morning. <laughs> so I'm watching you talk. It's only like a 40 second clip of you in the locker room kind of comparing the 2016 to the 2018 team and I'll, I'll let you kind of rehash it, but you, you were, you were kind of 
pent up and excited that the trophy had just been won. But tell me about uh, your, your feelings in that locker room afterwards and you're kind of being asked, you know, how does this compare to when you won the championship 12 years ago when you were a senior? What do you remember about your, your initial feelings after that 18 win? Right, yeah, that was that was big hype in that moment. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it was actually the second to last after the second to last game where Trevor Larnick had just hit the home run. Might have been game we, two, yeah. And because for me that was the most surreal because if you can remember in 2006, I got lucky enough to hit a home run in game two of a championship series to put us ahead in the game. And so it was already such a trip for me from a player's perspective to be watching that as a coach unfolding and then for such a similar route to have been taken, losing and then coming through the loser's bracket and then watching Trevor hit that home run just after that game, that's that's when every single person on that team knew that no matter what, we were going to win a championship. You know, there's no more doubt. It didn't matter what happened in that last game. We were never going to give up hope that we were going to be able to win because it's magic, you know, and that's what I told those guys all season. You can win baseball games, you can get to Omaha, but it takes magic to actually win it. And so we got to find a way to capture that magic. And I think someone asked me about, you know, the quality of the teams comparing the two. And it wasn't even close. I, I remember just thinking, like, you can't really compare all those guys to our 2006 team. Uh, you know, those are legends who were on that 2018 team. I mean, that many first rounders in the same lineup, it was just really special to get to watch them win that championship, especially where they had been the year before and coming back without the trophy, you know, feeling like they might've got slighted a little bit and just having that weird stuff happen, which I wasn't a part of that team. So, and that the same way with in 2006, you know, I just, I came in after they had lost in Omaha. So I didn't really have any of that negative energy, um, but it was really fun the whole season in 2018, just watching those guys determined to win a championship and then getting interviewed after that game was just kind of the culmination of and we all believe it and it's going to happen now so yeah probably the most excited I've ever been after a game when you're not a player you just get to experience those moments and cherish them you don't really have to you know worry about how you're going to be performing the next day and I remember in 2006 you can celebrate a little bit but you're always just trying to stay focused on the end goal which is to win the championship so as a coach, you get to kind of enjoy the moment a little bit more. You don't have to worry about it all night. I mean, at least for me, I got to enjoy it kind of from every different player's perspective instead of having to just focus about playing first base and trying to find a good fastball to hit, which was kind of my focus in 2006. Right. One of the, the things that you had brought up in that little brief interview conversation after game two was Trevor Larnick because – you know, I think he had struck out with the bases loaded earlier in the game, had a couple missed opportunities. He's out in right field, and there's that Arkansas fan section. It might have even been a lot of students from Arkansas beyond right field where he's the right fielder. Then in the ninth inning where he nearly didn't have an opportunity to bat if Caden Grenier's foul ball gets caught, but then he comes up and launches a home run to right field, right where that student section was. Then he goes out and plays the bottom of the ninth in right field, right where all those fans have to kind of eat their words, basically. And you brought that up of how cathartic it was to see that home run. Did, did you hear, maybe not personally because you were in the dugout, but did he tell you 
like some smack talk that they were giving him? Do you know of what, what was going on out there before then? Whole right field section was chanting Trevor sucks all game long, like loudly right in his ear all game, just Trevor. And he was just ignoring them completely, you know, not feeding into it all. Trevor is such a level-headed dude. I mean, he handles pressure so well. That's one of his strongest traits in my opinion. And so when he hit that home run to right field after they were chanting to him all game, I just couldn't contain myself. And Carl, one of our photographers, captured the moment of me like standing out in front of the dugout, basically pointing to right field, saying, you know, that was for you, that was for you. And then, you know, they were quiet for the rest of the game after that. Yeah. One last question about 2018, and then we'll talk about 06 briefly, since that was the one you were on winning the national championship. But similar moment or, or recent moment from game two, if Caden Granier's foul ball goes up and that could have been the end, right when the ball hits his bat and goes up, before you see it drop, before you see his single after that, just the second his ball comes off the bat and kind of shoots up in the air, kind of tailing towards shallow right, what's your very first thought? Uh, you're basically praying at that point. I didn't watch it. I put my head down. I'm just like, drop it, drop it, drop it. Just something, just something happened. Just anything happened. Just something happened. And you just hear that noise of like, you know that something happened awesome. And you open your eyes. Oh my gosh, here we go. You know, and that's that magic. You just, in that moment, you're trying to find that magic. You just, one more time, baby, just find some way for us to stay alive here for this moment. And we're going to get it done. And then it happened. So. Taking advantage, it's a big deal because when you won in 2006, this would have been game three against North Carolina, and you're trying to win the program's first ever national championship, your only season playing for the Beavers. And this wasn't the only reason that you won, but it was one of the defining moments was a mistake made by one of the fielders on the right side for North Carolina where you're standing on second base. Ryan Gibson bounces a ball, kind of routine play and just airmails it, throws it wide to the first baseman. You scurry down the third baseline and score the go-ahead run, and it turns out to be the winning run in Game 3 of the National Championship. So there's some connecting factor of Arkansas makes a mistake, overruns a ball, Oregon State wins the National Championship, North Carolina makes a mistake, and you took advantage. I mean, there's plenty of other moments that got you to that position. It's not just them making a mistake, but there's a bit of a connection, and both teams were able to take advantage. Yeah, definitely capitalizing on errors was one of our strong suits in 2006. I mean, we depended upon just playing really strong defense. And all I can remember from the 2018 mistake is that Coach Bailey was in charge of the outfielders that season. And he works on flyball comm. We would work do flyball communication almost every practice. Flyball comm every practice with Coach Bailey. And so after th- after that game that's just what all the guys would keep yelling randomly from the tour bus at different moments of fly ball calm fly ball calm you know everyone would start laughing just it's always those tiny seemingly insignificant things that you practice that end up being so important bunt defense Footwork at first base, which I think was a big contributor in 2006 to that ball not being caught fly ball communication and then just good strike zone discipline because my I had a walk that got me on base and Zach Taylor also had a crucial walk in 2018 and and just those those little things are the things as a coach having been through that 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 you preach and the players buy in because they see those things also and they realize like he's he's not joking like I, we need to work on our fly ball calm because Arkansas lost an entire national championship not communicating properly on a fly ball in foul territory yeah. you know 
Yeah, it's like anytime you see a ball go up in that zone now, it's basically been immortalized and you just yell Arkansas, like, and just hope it drops. That's what, that's what happens now. If a ball's behind first base, you just yell Arkansas and hope it falls. <laughs> It's it, that'll never get old trolling them and, and uh, capitalizing, as you say, a uh, couple last things for you, Bill. I like to ask this question of the 2018 players, but I haven't asked anyone from the 06 or 07 squads the same question. It may have a different perspective because it's been longer. A- any fan could watch on TV and see what it looks like to win a national championship. You see the dog file dog pile. You see the, the smiles on the players faces. You see the elation. It looks great. And I'm sure it is. But the fans don't see what does a national championship mean and how does it impact you, the lessons you learn of realizing, oh, that's what it feels like, or that's the aftermath of a national championship. That's how it changed me as a person six months later, five years later, the rest of your life. So what's something that maybe you learned winning a national championship in 06 that the 99% of people who have never won an NCAA championship wouldn't have experienced? What did you take away from that championship 14 years ago? Yeah, you're bringing some great questions in this session right here. Just awesome job on your part. So yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, as as a player, when it happens, you think, okay, I've accomplished that moment, right? And I have the trophy, I have the ring. But what you don't realize is how much that brings that team together for the rest of your life. And you know, you stay together with your buddies from your college team, but with a national championship team like that, I just feel like it it becomes a very special bond and it changes your life. I mean, it can define you as a person and you're going to have to probably work pretty hard if you're going to be in the state of Oregon for people to look at you any other way other than a championship baseball player. And that's awesome. It's a great place to start for networking for a job or for any coaching opportunity and so it changes your life in those from those perspectives as you get older which you don't realize but the opportunities that we have to get back together as a team whether at Oregon State or basically any time I mean we have a text message chain going and we all stay in contact on a pretty regular basis that way and um, we're actually hosting this summer on July 28th, if I can get enough guys committed, a, a Beaver baseball alumni game versus the Medford Rogues. And I've already got the coaching staff committed. So I hope if they're hearing this now, they know that I've called it out on the podcast. So they have to show up now. Yeah, absolutely. Tell you what, if you connect me with any of the other players, then I'll, I'll get them on the podcast and I'll tell them you can come on, but you got to go down and play the alumni game with Bill Rowe and the Rogue. That's so. right. Yeah. Well, if you haven't talked to Kyle Novak yet, that's one you definitely have to talk to because that is just a character. He is great on air no matter what. Oh yeah. Novak was, I think the first baseball guy I got on and, and remains one of the best you'll ever get. So he was, he was fantastic. Last thing I meant to, to give you a heads up. I'd ask this, but you probably are able to, to think of an answer even on the spot of your favorite Pat Casey story, playing for him in 06, coaching with him in, in 18, uh, from all the memories you have, anything stand out? Uh, do you have a Pat Casey story? Uh, two really quick. The first one's really quick. And that's just one time I worked for the PAC 12 network on a little video spot right after we won the championship and we were interviewing Pat Casey and I was on the squad. And in that interview, he referred to our 2016 as a fruit salad because he was talking about how some he's a sometimes you know you just chop up a bunch of different fruit and throw it together and it makes a pretty good fruit salad and that's like how he referred to that team being put together with players and so I thought that was pretty funny I'd never heard a coach refer to a team <laughs> like that before and then the second one uh happened I want to say it was 20 
maybe it was the beginning of the 2019 season down in Arizona. I was in the sports bar next to our hotel with a couple of the coaches after dinner and Case walked in uh, with a group of his high school friends and it was a karaoke bar. And I told the coaches I was with that they could pick any Disney song they wanted and I would go sing it to Case. And so they picked Hakuna Matata and I, I sung Hakuna Matata to Case and all his high school friends in the sports bar in Arizona. And so that was a pretty memorable moment having a couple beers with him and, and singing Hakuna Matata. I thought you were going to say you got Pat Casey to sing a Disney song, but either way is good. Maybe next time, maybe next time. <laughs> yeah. Well, these are some great memories. Thanks so much for, for sharing your, your heart for the players and the coaching that you're doing from, from sexy fly to a fruit salad and all the other things we've touched on. It's been great talking to you, Bill. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Great talking to you. Well, there were a lot of fun stories that Bill Rao shared there from taunting the Arkansas student section after Trevor Larnick blasted a home run in game two there in 2018 or his memories of 2006. One of the coolest things is just how he shared his intention and hope to prepare his players and how to coach them of even before the conversations we're having now on, on racial inequality and some really necessary conversations, Bill shared, you know, I've been looking forward to coaching these guys and setting a tone for here's what we're about. Here's what we're not going to allow. And he wanted to make that clear for these players and set an example for them, set a certain standard for what types of people, what type of men he wanted his baseball players to be. So I think that was really the type of heart that I want to capture in, in talking to some of these coaches when I interviewed Pat Bailey and Bill Rao and hopefully some more coaches, not just in the baseball program, but certainly having won a national championship. They've got a, a validity to share. So more fun episodes to come. Thanks for tuning in. My greatest appreciation for listening. If you check out Kingdom Home or any of the other nonprofits I mentioned on this podcast, again, that's Matt Boyd's charity, kingdomhome.org. Always give me feedback on this podcast, either on Twitter at Bright Ties, the word bright, the word ties, or even email me at warden.josh at gmail.com. That's warden with an O, W-O-R-D-E-N dot josh, J-O-S-H at gmail.com. Let me know your thoughts, your feedback, or what guests you'd like to see on this podcast. Thanks everybody for listening. Good night and go beat.